0: Well, if you were here with us last week, I made a few rather audacious claims in the pulpit. Uh, We have been in a series skating through the epistles of Paul, so the letters written by the apostle Paul, or Saul, he goes by, and this is part two of our Great Commission series, which has taken us through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and now the epistles. So last week was the first message of two in the letter to the Galatians. And we had studied uh, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians and the Corinthians before that. And so we're following these letters not in the order in which they're printed in your Bibles, but in chronological order, the order in which they were likely written. Now last week we looked at Galatians 2, and I argued that Christians are not a document-based people. That we are not a people of the book, but rather that we are people of the gospel, people of a person, people of the Christ, okay? I mention, though, that Christians sometimes read the Bible or think about Christian tradition, principles, norms like the Jews often thought of Torah, as these standards, these norms, these regulations to follow quite carefully, to define this group as the people of God, excluding others. Last week, effectively, I argued that we've been freed from those restrictive forms of religion, that they were crucified with Christ on the cross, and that we now live in freedom, peace, and openness. Now, some of you, after hearing that message, I'm sure became rather concerned. Some of you are probably wondering, are you saying, Jonah, that there are no rules, no principles or guidelines by which to live? I agree with you, Jonah, that we've been freed from captivity to the law, yes, yes. But are we now totally autonomous, set loose in the world to do whatever it is that we want? Is that what you're saying? Well, these, friends, are the same concerns, the same questions that the rival teachers in Galatia had for Paul. Now, to review the context a little, there were these Jewish Christian missionaries or teachers that came from James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, as well as what's called the circumcision party, and they came into Galatia, a largely non-Jewish set of cities and churches, and they were teaching that the gospel does not eclipse the Torah and become our new norm, but that the gospel needs to work in conjunction with Torah. Torah. So in effect, these Jewish Christian teachers were saying to these non-Jewish Galatians that to be a real Christian, you have to become Jewish. You have to become circumcised and follow the Sabbath and the food laws, the festivals, etc. You have to become Jewish. And so Paul writes in Galatians into this situation, and we talked a lot about that last week, where he talks about the gospel coming in, characterizing this new age of history such that Torah, as a norm, is eclipsed or almost replaced. So Paul's talking about freedom, about this new kind of life, and these Galatian teachers, Jews like Paul, are thinking, Paul, do you really think that human beings with no rules or regulations can live healthy or virtuous lives? Do you really expect these Gentile Galatians, they're great people, I've eaten with them, I've at least talked to them a little bit, do you really expect them to live well without norms, rules, anything to guide them? These are precisely the questions that Paul addresses in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. So if you share those concerns, take heart because this passage was written for you. What Paul effectively says in Galatians 5, a portion of Galatians 5, is that Christians, though free, though free, are not left without guidance. The norm, the standard, the, the rule that's to dictate our lives is the gospel. It is the life of a person. Jesus, yes, But God has given us something special, something new, to keep us aligned to that norm. And that something new, which is foretold by the prophets of Israel, is the very own spirit of God. The Torah, friends, the law of Moses, which you can read of in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah was never meant to last forever. Paul in Galatians 3 speaks of Torah as the law, uh, as a sort of chaperone or guardian that's, that's meant to look after a growing child until they come of age. Second Temple Jews believed, though, that, that when Messiah would come, he would bring with him this new age of history, that, that history itself would, as it were, come of age. When Messiah would come, then the Torah, this law, would no longer be needed. This faith based on regulations and restrictions would would fade away. The Torah then was provisional, kind of like the spiritual gifts that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, that some of these are useful and will pass away, other virtues will remain forever. The law was like this. In its place, when Messiah would come, He would bring a faith that is based not on law, but on presence, on spirit itself. In other words, no longer would His people relate to Him through law, ritual, or ceremony. Rather, they'd relate to God through connection, through sharing the same spirit as God. We are then, as Christians, a spirit-based people, indwelt with the very mind, the personality of Christ. It is not the Torah then or a Torah-like approach to Scripture that aligns our life, but it's the very own Spirit of God. The point that I want to make then this morning through our text in Galatians 5 is that freedom, hear this, Freedom does not mean lawlessness. It doesn't mean the occasion to do whatever we want. No. Freedom, this new place, this new life of freedom, means the freedom to serve one another. To give our lives in Christ-like love. So that is what Paul proposes in response to these Rival teachers, and that is the idea that we're going to unpack this morning. But before we dive in officially, let's take a moment to pray. Would you now pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for the gospel. The gospel which tells us the story of the God-man, Jesus, Messiah Jesus. We thank you for Jesus, for this person, this human life that has become for us our new norm. I pray, Lord, that as we study your word this morning together, that you would conform us to the image of Jesus, that we would see clearly the life and heart of Jesus, and that through the Spirit, we would align our lives to him. We love you and pray for soft hearts and that you would transform us from within this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you haven't already, uh, would you turn with me to Galatians 5, starting at verse 13. And those few Bibles should work, I will be reading from the ESV, Galatians 5, 13. Um, Before I read it, uh, let me just set it in its context, that's always a good thing to do, especially in a series like this. Paul's letter to the Galatians has been divided into six chapters, and those chapters form couplets, making kind of a three-part division. So the first two chapters really concern the gospel of Christ. Paul talks about the situation in Galatia, these rival teachers, and he articulates his gospel of freedom. first section is the gospel of Christ. The second section, chapters 3 and 4, feature a very sophisticated biblical argument for the inclusion of non-Jews into the family of God. That's Galatians 3.4, and some have labeled this the promise of the Father. So the gospel of Christ, the promise of the Father, and the final section, chapters 5 and 6, has to do with the freedom of the Spirit. So we see a sort of Trinitarian Christ, the Father, the Spirit, logic in Galatians And so our passage falls in this final section, which talks about life on the ground in the Spirit in Galatia. And so we will be reading verses 13 through 26. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Well, before we jump in to this very iconic text in the Christian tradition and imagination, I want to just relate two points of kind of background or context that will help us hopefully understand what Paul is saying. The first point has to do with the Jewish context in which Paul uh, thought, taught, and wrote Some have called the movement in Judaism within which Paul was functioning as Jewish apocalypticism. Big word, I know, but if you think about the word apocalyptic, often we we think about the end of the world, you know? Um, But in, in the Bible, we have apocalyptic literature, like the book of Daniel, the revelation at the end of the New Testament. You can read portions of the prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and so forth. To apocalypto, something in Greek, is to uncover it, to pull back the curtain, the the veil, so to speak. So it's to look into God's reality, God's perspective on history and the universe. So many of these Jews in this apocalyptic tradition, they, they thought about history, for one, as being divided into ages or eons. And these ages had a quality to them. Time was not just quantified, but it was, it was qualitative. It, it had a nature to it. And so in this worldview, there would be an old age that was characterized by certain things, often negatively. And then there would be this new age that's brought about that in the Jewish imagination would last forever. Not only this... But the apocalyptic worldview saw the universe being affected, manipulated, or influenced by a host of spiritual forces or beings. Now we read about angels and demons in scripture, but we also read of these forces, these virtues or vices with a capital letter. So think of wisdom, capital W. You can think of life even, flesh, death evil, sin, etc. So in in Paul's thinking, these are realities that we face on a daily basis, but they are conceptualized as these cosmic forces that are almost warring against one another. And so when he speaks about the Christian life as an apocalyptic Jew, he's thinking about these forces that are almost uh, having their way with us. And this is a metaphorical way of thinking. So keep that in mind as we move forward and as we talk about the flesh and the spirit, the law, almost think of those words as being capitalized, as as forces, okay? The second thing that I want to mention before we dive in is, as I'm reading this passage and preparing for this sermon, I can't help but notice, especially through the language of slavery, freedom, walking being led by, I can't help but think of the story of the exodus in the Old Testament. And as I looked up some of the words, they commonly occur in context in the Old Testament, speaking about the exodus. So for those who don't know, the people of Israel were enslaved in the land of Egypt for 400 years, and the story is told in the end of Genesis and in Exodus, and then through this man Moses, the shepherd Moses, God liberates the people of Israel from this life of captivity, this life of slavery. He frees them and he leads them walking through the wilderness. And he leads them as this pillar of fire, this cloud of smoke. He leads them, they walk by him through the wilderness to this land of freedom this promised land. So as we think about our liberation from the law and the flesh and being led into this new place of freedom, I want you to just think of the story of the Exodus because I think that Paul has it in view. Now before we jump in, and I want to just divide this into three points, let me just tell you the main idea of this passage, so that if you, when you fall asleep, you can at least remember the uh, main idea, right? People were wondering if Paul was promoting lawlessness. Are you saying that we are just left without help in this new life of freedom? Paul is saying no. We have been given help. To make sure we stay aligned to the gospel. What we have been given is the Spirit of God. What this passage shows us is that the Spirit is our guide in this new life of freedom, and that Spirit-based living is not self-indulgent, but is rather self-denying. Not self-indulgent, but self-denying. The first point that Paul makes comes in verses 13 through 15, so the first three verses of our passage. And the point that he makes relates to that main idea, and that is, we are free now, yes, but we are not free to just do what we want. We are free to give ourselves in love to each other. He opens by saying, you were called to freedom. Only do not allow this position of freedom, this state of freedom to become an opportunity, a base of operations for the Flesh, capital F. You've been liberated from this slave master, the law, but do not enslave yourselves to this other master, the flesh, but rather enslave yourselves to one another. The verb in Greek is the word to enslave yourself, I think some modern translations soften this by translating it serve. But Paul is thinking of slavery and freedom. He's thinking of slave masters and slaves. And and now that we've been liberated from law, we are to enslave ourselves, he says, to one another. Now, this is the exact language used of Jesus, especially in Paul's letter to the Philippians, which we'll get to in a few weeks where Jesus became not only a human, but a slave. And he he was obedient to the point of death. So we've been liberated not to just be autonomous, self-indulgent people doing whatever we want, but rather to enslave ourselves to one another. And he says the whole law, the whole Torah was pointing toward this reality That is, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul's first point then is quite simple. He's responding to the arguments of the Galatian teachers, and the point is that we are free not to serve ourselves, but to serve one another as Christ does. The second point then comes in verses 16 through 18, so the next three-verse chunk. And here we meet... The Spirit, capital S, Spirit. Now again, I want you to think of these forces, these cosmic forces that are kind of warring against each other. That now that you've been freed from law, capital L, law, you kind of exist in freedom, and there are these forces that are vying for your allegiance or your obedience. And this force that Paul introduces here is the, the force, the person, the entity the power that God has given us in this new life. He says, walk by the Spirit in verse 16. This verb is in the present tense which connotes uh, unfolding, progressive action. It's like you're zoomed in and you're watching it move. It's dynamic. A translation then could be keep walking by the Spirit. Make sure that you are walking by the Spirit. As long as you are walking by the Spirit, you will not ever gratify the desires of the flesh. The double negative in Greek, the most emphatic construction you could get. The Spirit, then, is is portrayed here as a sort of road or a path. Now, to walk in the Old Testament, some of you may know this, it, it signifies life life. So to walk was to live. Life was conceived of as a journey that one would take. And as you're moving through life, there are these roadside attractions or ditches that could divert you from the path. And so the law of God, the Torah is often spoken of as a way, a road, or a lamp, something to illuminate your way. If you look at walk by, this construction in the Old Testament, it's almost always walk by the law of God, the Torah, the Scriptures. So for Paul to say walk by the Spirit as a Jew would be striking. The same language that's used of God's law is used here of the Spirit. The Spirit is the road, the path, the lamppost that will make sure that you stay on the path of life, that you stay straight, moving, progressing, not diverting into these other dangers. The Spirit, then, is what keeps us from just doing what we want and is what helps us love one another. That's point two. Now, the final point uh, comes through in the last eight verses of our passage, so verses 19 through 26. Paul then lists these works of the spirit paralleling the uh, works of the law from Galatians 2 and these are practices habits that that emerge from a life enslaved to the spirit or to the flesh sorry and so a, a life that is self-indulgent that is choosing the flesh as its master issues forth in these kinds of practices all of these practices if you read them destroy or degrade the community Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, strife, jealousy, things like that. But in verse 22, we hear about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, these works of the flesh are plural and have to do with actions that are actively pursued. The fruit of the Spirit is singular, and fruit is kind of passive. Fruit is what organically emerges from a healthy organism. So the health of the organism is the priority, and fruit tells you that the organism is healthy. It's what emerges from an organism that is flourishing. Okay, Think of a tree or a shrub. Fruit here is singular, and some scholars argue that the singular fruit of the Spirit is love. And I tried to accent that in my reading of the passage. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Paul prioritizes love in 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Thessalonians. And some argue then that all of these other predicates which follow, joy, peace, patience, um, tell us how love manifests itself. The fruit of the Spirit is love which issues forth in joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and the like. You don't have to agree with that grammatical interpretation, but the fact that love is put first is significant. Love, this self-denying regard for the other, is the fruit that emerges from a spirit-led life. The final point, then, is that doing what we want, simply giving in to the flesh, harms the community. Whereas spirit-based living... Aligning our lives with the Spirit builds up the community. Paul is thus saying that we have been freed not to just do what we want, but to give our lives in love for each other. The Spirit, friends, is the guide that we've been given to make sure that we stay aligned to our new norm, the gospel. So, we are a Spirit-based people. I think that much is clear. But what does this look like on the ground? Specifically, a question that I was asked this past week is, how do we now approach Scripture given that we are a spirit or gospel-based people? Now, an analogy that has proven so helpful to me in thinking about this, how we as Christians are to live our lives Uh, especially in contrast to this Torah-like approach to religion as rules and stipulations, the analogy speaks about this play, this five-act play. A scholar by the name of N.T. Wright is instrumental in this analogy, and so I should probably give him credit for it. But others have probably thought of this way long before him. And so the idea is that the scriptures, the narrative of God's dealings with the world are to be thought of as a play. And in the Old Testament and the New, we have the first four acts of the play. And in the book of Acts, the story of, of the early church, we have the beginnings of the fifth act. That's what, what Wright says. It is as though we've discovered this incomplete play and we have this troop of actors that's to, to read the play so well, and to read it all the way up to the beginnings of the fifth act, that in our lives, we can improvise the fifth act in a way that aligns with and completes the play. Last week, I talked about Scripture not as rules to, to follow to a T, but rather testimony to a person, Jesus. They are are testifying to this human life that is the real end that we're to focus on. Not only this, but Acts, the stories of the earliest Christians, are testimony about the earliest, the first spirit-led believers. It it shows us the many ways in which we can live spirit-led Lives. So they can be thought of almost as case studies, as, as windows, glimpses into the earliest Christians in the book of Acts. I really like this analogy because it means that we have to saturate ourselves in Scripture, reading the first four acts, but, but looking into the lives of the earliest Christians, not necessarily reproducing everything they do today today but figuring out how to improvise in our current context in a way that honors the first four and a half acts that have been written. As spirit-led people, the spirit helps us to improvise. And the beautiful thing is we don't do this alone, but we have each other. We can show each other what it looks like to live spirit-led lives. So in closing this morning, friends, we have been liberated from a life of slavery and have been led into a spacious land of freedom. Here in this place of freedom, let us live by the Spirit of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and For the Spirit of God that has been given us to align us with the gospel. I pray that the Spirit would have its way with us, Lord, and that the Spirit would compel us to give our lives to each other in love, just like you have done for us. Be with us as we celebrate communion this morning, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.